0: Swami welcomes you with great love and great respect from the heart of all. Welcome to Meditative Living with Swami Shivanandagiri. We are continuing today our series exploring the text of the authoritative Guru Gita of His Holiness Mahamandeleshwar Parmahamsa Swarupananda Vishwaguru Maharaj Swami of Los Angeles, California, who is this Swami's guru and was also the very first white skinned American born human being. Invited into the rank of the eighty Mahamandaleshwaras, By now there are eighty of these humans, and by definition, a Mahamandaleshwar is a theological authority, the weight of whose stance in any matter is second only within Sanatana Dharma second only to the four Shankaracharyas. Thus, this is truly the authoritative position on the ancient text called Guru Gita. This book was put together in a combined effort. The translation was done by Acharya Padma, from the Sanskrit into English. The commentary and the overall course of the project was carried out by Swami Anantanandagiri and both of them worked very carefully under the direct... Supervision of whom we, who are his initiates, refer to as H.H. It's just quicker to type and say that than His Holiness Mahaman Baleshwar Paramahamsa Swarupananda Vishwaguru Maharaj Swamiji. <laughs> so he saves us some some breath and typing by just allowing us to refer to him as H.H. But, let us get into our presentation for today. We're going to begin with, well, first, before we go to a verse, allow this Swami to once again explain that if this is the first you're hearing in this series, you really ought to go back to the archives at wwwtype one that's the numeral one not the spelling type go to the Meditative Living archives and begin with Guru Gita Episode 1 that will serve you far better than jumping in midstream, okay? Now, what is going on in the text, the ancient text of Guru Gita itself? Well, here's what's going on. Shiva and his wife Parvati are having a conversation. She saw Shiva teaching a group called the Shapta Rishis, the seven first students assigned by Shiva to go out and teach yoga. Now, Parvati had already become enlightened and liberated directly by Shiva's teachings and her own practices under his supervision. So she wasn't really, you know, informed of a lot of the theoretical things and and a whole lot of the details and stuff that, you know, weren't particularly useful for her. But she comes by and she sees Shiva sitting and giving discourse or satsang which means communing with truth, to the Shaptarishis. And he's going off into all this, all this stuff that she never heard anything about. She's, so she's quite curious. And she asks Shiva, why what's going on here? This wasn't what I did. So she then asks Shiva. How does a human being become like you? And this pleases Shiva greatly because no one had ever asked him that question before. <laughs> they asked him for stuff and, you know, all that sort of thing, but no one had ever asked this particular question. So that's how the conversation, which is the Guru Gita ancient text begins now we will go into verse or shloka 208 Shiva says now okay before starting at this point it could be a tad confusing but what Shiva is explaining throughout this entire text is how the guru-student relationship works and how it is that one who has attained enlightenment and liberation assists someone else to the very same result. So in this, you're going to hear Shiva refer to guru a lot. You have to be able to discern yourself when Shiva is speaking of the eternal one from which everything comes and to which everything returns, that guru, or the living embodied human who is tasked with the function of guruing which is assisting others to accomplish that full complete state of consciousness or sometimes speaking of bad guru the ones everybody worries about, that's going to steal your money, make you have sex, you know, stuff like that. Okay, they exist too. But in this shloka, or verse number 208, Shiva is speaking directly to the source of all. And Shiva says, O Lord, I bow to your lotus feet, which are always thought of by the seekers of liberation with their entire being, intellect, mind, sense organs, breath, and speech, in order to obtain release from the effects of their actions. Now, in the next verse... Speaking to Parvati, Shiva says, O Devi, I will tell you what can be achieved by this understanding, which is beneficial to the world. One should renounce the worldliness from their mind. The Commentary. Shiva is about to detail the outcomes of various levels of understanding, beginning with the highest and describing various general benefits of repeating the Guru Gita, which is a practice in and of itself. Some shlokas detail the magical correspondences of various types of seats based on their material and color. The list of correspondences continues to detail various directions that the practitioner can face. All of these considerations promote varying outcomes. There is also a list of more general benefits, both worldly and spiritual, of repeating the Guru Gita as a practice. There is a description of all the places that are appropriate for one to repeat the Guru Gita. And there's another brief list of seats of specific colors and the specific outcome promoted by each. Now this is the most, some of the most esoteric of what is given as secret or hidden knowledge in Guru Gita, these effects, and what ways one may use in order to gain the varying effects. Returning to the commentary. What we are presented with here is essentially an account of all the outcomes an individual could potentially desire and a means of consummating that desire. The entire spectrum of human motives is represented here from those that reflect a relatively deluded perspective, that being an ignorant person, one who just does not yet know, to those that are indicative of a very high degree of illumination or enlightenment or at least a desire to reach that point. The reader here is instructed in how to rid the mind of delusion, rise above the law of cause and effect, and realize the peace of the self. That's what a capital is. At the same time, Shiva tells those who are interested in such things how to attract money, subjugate others under their will, and even how to kill someone using magic. The usefulness of these correspondences isn't limited to those with worldly ambitions. One potentially worthwhile application for the acquisition of the powers described herein is that they grant the ability to neutralize the use of the same powers by those who intend to use them for evil. We are also informed here of seats places, and directions that promote enlightenment and are warned against the use of seats that will undermine our efforts. Finally, as a friend once pointed out to me, lunch is a reality. <laughs> Guruji says, now Swami Anantananda is speaking of our guru here. Guruji says, There's nothing wrong with asking for what you need. Even for those of us for whom there's nothing left to do in life but become enlightened, there are still things that we need in order to carry out that work and to perform our other duties in life. The information contained in this section of the Guru Gita can be used toward that end, and we can still trust that ultimately the Guru will keep us on the right trajectory. The Guru Gita is a patently tantric work And this particular subject matter is indicative of that Tantric outlook. We are presented here with a major defining feature of Tantra, one that sets it apart from many other paths. The vast majority of people who find themselves drawn to the spiritual path still have materialistic tendencies. Many spiritual philosophies posit that the spiritual and the material are mutually exclusive. Thus, many individuals who would otherwise be motivated to undertake a spiritual discipline of some form or another are put off the path, perhaps perceiving themselves as somehow impure or unfit. Or the work. Others take up the spiritual path and either end up successfully repressing material desires or they fail to do so but continue to pay lip service to such ideas, effectively making hypocrites of themselves. Tantra welcomes, embraces, and accommodates the individual at whatever degree of maturity they exhibit upon taking up the discipline. It offers technologies designed to help the individual satisfy material wants and needs, whatever they may be. Simultaneously, they engage in whatever spiritual practice they are capable of performing effectively purifying the individual of their materialistic tendencies in the process. According to the tantric outlook, there is no difference between the sacred and the mundane, the pure and the impure, the holy and the profane, since there is nothing that is not Shiva, to harbor such distinguish, uh, distinctions is to entirely miss the big picture. As such, even one's base tendencies can be transmuted into something that promotes the expansion of consciousness. Having said all that, actions stemming from delusion, which would be those motivated by fear, anger, greed, jealousy, pride, lust, etc., are going to have consequences no matter what. This is especially the case when the action is something as severe as killing or manipulating people. However, those who come to the Guru Gita in search of such information at least are more fortunate than those who carry out the same or similar actions without having referenced it. It is the killer who kills. The means are just a tool. For example, if I were to teach someone about fire, it would be incumbent upon me not just to teach how to build the fire, how to use it to keep warm, and how to use it to cook food, It would also be important to point out its ability to burn and even to kill. As with fire, magic is a tool that can be used for better or for worse. The outcome is dependent upon the intention of the one using the tool. Thus, The responsibility for the outcome lies exclusively on the shoulders of the one wielding that tool. But the Guru Gita is more than just an insentient tool. Being a wish-fulfilling gem, the wishes it grants are dependent upon its holder. At the same time, it puts an end to bad actions and promotes good actions. It increases one's virtue. It replaces one's confusion with peace of mind and destroys all bondage. One who takes recourse to the study of Guru Gita, even for reasons motivated by delusion, will be benefited by a relative expansion of consciousness. Kindly allow this Swami to expand a little bit here. Okay, so here's what we're doing. We are about to enter into discussion of topics, means, and methods that are not generally given to the general public. This is for the knowledge of devotees, disciples, and initiates. This swami runs a small risk in making this knowledge available to the general public. Anybody can tune in this program and get this information. But there's a safety feature because those who would come to this with only a selfish, power-driven, self-serving motive, they'll be sniffed out pretty quickly. And they will not have created within their own consciousness the stability, Required to get the maximum results of these practices. They won't have put hardly any time into any of the stabilizing practices which are required to full force operate some of these esoteric laws and such. Sonic, let's go ahead and run the break song. When we get back, we will dip into the esoteric side of Mahadeva, Mahayoga, which this Swami is an authorized representative of, right here on Meditative Living. Om Namah Shiva, Yeshiva Jiva Om Namah Shiva, Yeshiva Jiva Om Namah Shiva, Yeshiva Shiva, Yeshiva Shiva, 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 Om Namah Shiva, 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 Namaste and blessings. Welcome back to Meditative Living with Swami Shivanandagiri, a Swami and Master of Mahadeva Mahayoga. Happy to be helping you along the path of the exploration of your own consciousness. Whether you become a member of this way or any other way, the Swami wishes you the speediest of results and the best of times. Now, <laughs> okay, here we go into some of the esoteric, the occult, the hidden. Kindly also let this Swami inform you that should you make any attempt to misuse this information, be advised. This Swami can sniff you out like a fart in a car, and there will be subtle realm consequences for that sort of thing. This Swami is already a master, and it would be best not to attempt anything that would be harmful or manipulative to any living thing with the information this Swami is about to give. Verse 210 2.14, Shiva says to Parvati, one without knowledge, that's capital K knowledge, Jnana, will suffer from worldliness in the ocean of transmigration. But the actions of a man or woman with Knowledge becomes non action and produce no bondage. Whoever reads, writes, or listens to this Guru Gita with devotion or gifts it to someone else will accrue merit. O Devi speaking to his wife here. Devi, meaning a female god or goddess. O Devi, always contemplate this Guru Gita in your heart. Even in the midst of great suffering, even when stricken with disease, repeat this cheerfully. Dear one, each and every syllable of the Guru Gita is the king of mantras. Other mantras do not possess even one-sixteenth of its potency. O Parvati, the benefits obtained by repeating the Guru Gita are infinite. It destroys all sin and all poverty. The Commentary In the previous sloka, or verse, we were introduced to the idea that the Guru Gita possesses a certain unique potency. In other words, it has the power to effect various outcomes it possesses a certain magical efficacy. In this shloka, or verse, the first of these effects are listed. An intangible outcome attributed to making use of the Guru Gita is that it destroys all sins. By nature, it is essentially impossible to verify such a claim or to quantify its efficacy in this regard. We are implicitly asked here to take the Guru Gita's word for it. The following benefit attributed to the repetition of the Guru Gita, one that is no less bold then the one that preceded it is that it destroys all poverty. However bold it may be, this claim pertains to something a little more tangible, thus it is at least a little more verifiable. Any influx of wealth at any level following the adoption of of the Guru Gita as part of one's practice should at least serve to help corroborate the validity of the claims presented here and those like it. On that note, I should point out that wealth comes in many forms. Money is an obvious example but wealth is not limited to cash. Wealth can also come in the form of love, gratitude, happiness, contentment, and simple peace of mind. My point is this our faith in the Guru Gita need not be blind nor should one's faith in anything be blind. I wish neither to promote dogmatic acceptance nor rejection of anything, no matter how plausible or implausible it might seem at first glance. While some things are inherently unquantifiable, The Guru Gita has also begun offering criteria by which we can gauge its efficacy, at least to some extent. This does require the open-mindedness to entertain these notions as possibilities and a willingness to perform the practice that is said to promote the desired effect. The effects described so far are offered in pretty broad terms, but a number of other outcomes are about to be described, many of which are quite specific. Now we dip into magic and the occult. Since magic Is so easily construed as wholly implausible, I would like to address the subject at length. When I use the word magic, I'm referring to the act of influencing reality via the agency of one's intent. The magician often takes recourse to the utilization of certain occult principles to aid in this work. Occult is simply a Latin word that means secret or hidden. A Swami is technically an occultist because he or she has some degree of insight into the great mystery. If he or she does not, it is at least something he or she is actively pursuing. A magician is an occultist because they have somehow become aware of repeating motifs that pattern the universe. People throughout the ages have become aware of these patterns through dreams, visions, epiphanies, observation, both casual and via scientific instruments, trial and error, and by scientific experimentation, by grouping together elements who have some meaningful, albeit hidden, relationship, and Which also relate to the goal, the intention is strengthened, magnified, and sent into the universe. Since we live on a sphere or perhaps a toroid, as some have speculated, whatever we put out is destined to return. To become a magician, is to simply make that relationship of cause and effect more conscious, allowing us to better nurture the conditions that will foster desired outcome. Let's talk techno wizardry. <laughs> Let this swami get a drink first. <laughs> Magic is rampant in modern times. As this is written, a person can easily and clearly carry on an entire conversation with someone else on the other side of the globe. The process starts with an intention to do so. It is aided by a device we have dubbed in English the telephone. But, what is a telephone? This device, or in Sanskrit, this yantra, firstly, is dependent upon a power source. In this case, an electrical battery or outlet. Inside the telephone are various circuit boards, which are basically little plates made out of various metals, minerals, and plastics that interact with the energy that comes from the battery in specific ways. There is also a numeric interface connected to these circuit boards by which we translate our intention to call a specific person into a number designating the recipient's device. There are speakers and microphones attached to the circuit boards that translate our conversation into data that can be transmitted by our telephone to be received by the other party's telephone, which is then retranslated into sound, and vice versa. In Tantra, various universal energies are represented by deities. Their embodiment is said to be the mantra that corresponds to them. Like the circuit board in a phone, the yantra, utilized by the practitioner, is made out of a very specific material and is composed of very specific geometric patterns. For example, a yantra designed to work with the goddess Kali is usually made of iron and depicts a series of downward-pointing triangles among other shapes and lines, all arranged in a very specific and intentional manner. The angles of the triangles and the distance between each line, among other considerations, must very precisely match the prescribed specification. Like a telephone is energized by a phone battery, a Kali Yantra is energized by a Kali Mantra. Just as one can make a telephone call, check their email, or send a text message all on one telephone, the function carried out by the utilization of the Deity Mantra and yantra, depends upon the intention of the individual holding it at the time. In working with the Guru Gita, the Gita itself is the mantra. The Guru Tattva is the deity. The personal Guru is its physical manifestation a murti or a photo or statue of the guru can serve as a yantra. The intention is up to the individual since the reality of all specialized deities is grounded in the guru tatva only. One can appease all deities for any purpose by appeasing the Guru. Specific intentions can be rendered more potent by making use of correspondences. We have alluded to the law of correspondence in the preceding section and in the commentary following Shloka two oh nine. As touched upon previously, these are the external aids to the yogi or the magician. Classify them however you wish. They fit the individual would fit either category in this instance. These are the external aids to the intention to effect a desired outcome within the environment. Correspondences are determined by examining the patterns underlying diverse phenomena and taking note of where the patterns in question exhibit a harmonious overlap. For example, the low E string on a guitar sounds the same note as the high E string, just an octave lower. What dictates the note is the waveform of the sound. At certain intervals, as the waveform becomes either longer. Or shorter, the note will repeat itself at either a higher or lower pitch. If we follow the waveform outside of the realm of sound, we can further ascertain colors and smells, for example, that resonate harmoniously with the particular note in question. Thus, correspondences themselves are tools that a yogi or a magician can make use of to completely immerse their sensory experience in that which harmoniously resonates with their goal. Certain points in time and space Compass points, constellations, archetypal figures, etc. All have their particular correspondences as well. We're only scratching the surface here. Everything that exists is interrela- interrelated in this way. My goal is simply to make the concept of these correspondences itself clear as illustrated in discussing the example of the telephone these sorts of connections are not the exclusive domain of magic ritual as people might tend to conceive it all such technological advances fall squarely within the dominion of these connections What is technology, if not an icon of man's harnessing nature and directing it toward his will? Music and all other art relies upon these connections themselves. Its ability to translate these connections into something visceral is the sole appeal of art. Even when we speak and write, we are making use of patterns, and in the case of writing, we are using their symbols. As detailed in the section devoted to Sri Vidya, language itself exists on the archetypal plane as the very embodiment of duality itself prior to its temporal manifestation within time and space. Its use by man in varied forms by this reasoning is simply due to some innate ability to reflect this most primal of patterns. In short, we are all magical creatures, and we are all manipulators of this patterned universe of ours in one way or another, whether we know it or whether we do not. Each of us is a magician in his or her own right. As interconnected as we all are to each other, two dimensions not ordinarily perceived and to this earth we find ourselves upon, it behooves us to ask what we want our net impact to be. It is preferable to participate in our relationship with the self, with a capital S, because that's all that all this is at the end of the day. It is best to participate in a conscious manner rather than an absent-minded manner. The hierarchy of paths and desires. There is nothing that is not God. First, Inquire into and fully realize the nature of the self, with a big S, that is your most essential nature. It is beyond the sphere of the body mind complex. It is the pure, unconditioned consciousness that is the witness of all activities and appearances, yet, is completely untouched by them. This enlightened self is always already the case. The only subjective, excuse me, the only objective (laughs) of the spiritual path should be to find out that this is so. Can you perceive this now? Try to see this before embarking upon any other path. If successful, you will find yourself devoid of desire and attachment. There is nothing else to do or to become. When you have realized this directly, within yourself and become stable with that nothing else that this Guru Gita has to say applies to you anymore if you fail to see this presently but your sole desire is to do so to carry out the practice detailed by the Guru Gita, without harboring any other motive, will bring you to this most noble and worthwhile of goals, most expeditiously. If you find yourself torn between this high desire and longing for sex, money, fame, prestige, etc. Well, you can enjoy these as they come, simultaneously reminding yourself that suffering always follows closely behind attachment to worldly pleasures and praying inwardly to Guru to burn off any of these attachments. Gradually, by Guru's grace, these attachments will be diminished and your motives will gradually shift. More and more, little by little, they will begin to resemble those of the person of higher mind described above. If your attachments to worldly pleasures are so strong that you feel compelled to chase after them, even when it takes much strain and effort, you may use the tantric magic described herein to that end. You may or may not find it useful. In either case... While striving toward whatever end you have chosen, and while enjoying the fruits of those efforts, one should remember what has been described above. And that is this the fleeting pleasures of the world always give way. To sorrow and they should remember to pray diligently to guru to remove their longings and their compulsions they should pray that only the love of God and guru and the longing for true knowledge will remain even if you feel that your good tendencies are minimal and your materialistic tendencies are deeply ingrained, you are welcome on this path. If you read Guru Gita regularly, listen to it regularly. Even if it is with the intention of materialistic gain, it will further promote good tendencies and right understanding eventually. Well... If this Swami has ever come to a more natural place to end an episode, (laughs) here we are. Please allow this Swami to thank you for allowing this Swami and the knowledge this Swami holds to be a part of your existence next week we will get much deeper into the Guru Gita beginning with verse 215 just as a little tease I'm gonna I'm gonna share this little verse with you. Before we leave, repetition of the Guru Gita is the destroyer of untimely death. It protects one from every variety of suffering. It protects one from ghosts, demons, spirits, thieves, snake demons, and wild animals. And that is where we will wrap it up. (laughs) For this week, we will rejoin with that and the explanation next week here on Meditative Living. Thank you, Sonic. Blessings to all. Om Namo Narayana.